You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. We theologians seem to be drawn to economics. I'm not certain why, but we are. Catherine Tanner wrote Economy of Grace. Douglas Meeks wrote God the Economist, The Doctrine of God and Political Economy. And John Cobb co-authored with economist Herman Daly For the Common Good, redirecting the economy toward community, the environment, and a sustainable future. It was from Daly and Cobb's book that I was introduced to what has come to be called steady-state economics, or sometimes environmental economics. Having read the works of several steady-state economists, I have been persuaded by their offer of an alternative to the two dominant approaches to the economy, which are free market capitalism and socialism, both of which steady-state economists characterize as growth economies. Consequently, I want to make you aware of this steady-state economic alternative by having a series over time in which I have an ongoing conversation with steady-state economists. My guest today is Rob Dietz. Formerly, Rob was the executive director of the Center for the Advancement of the Study of Steady State Economics, uh, called CASI, and is now program director for Post Carbon Institute. He is graciously offering his time today to help us more fully understand steady state economics by talking about his book, which he co-authored with Dan O'Neill and was published in 2013, called Enough is Enough. Building a Sustainable Economy in a World of Finite Resources. So, Rob, welcome. Thank you for being with me today. Oh, it's great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, why don't we begin by uh, you kind of talking about your own life journey uh, that has led you into this commitment to uh, steady-state economics, uh, pursuing it, and also then to your uh, uh, moving to the Post-Carbon Institute. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, we'll see which uh, twisted, convoluted path we, we go down here. But uh, sometimes when I reflect on how I got here, I, I, it takes me all the way back to childhood. Um, and I think where it started was a, I wouldn't have called it this at the time, but a, a dawning mistrust of consumerism. And uh, why I say that is I, I distinctly remember uh, one time when I was a kid um, deciding to clean up my room. And I'm in my closet and I've got all these uh, old plastic toys that I had gotten at Christmas presents or whatever picked up along the way. And it's just a mess and I'm kind of shuffling them around, trying to arrange them. And it, it really struck me. It just kind of hit me all of a sudden. Like, why am I spending my time on this when I could be running around outside? I mean, that was, I guess, the, the flip side of that is I loved being outside and exploring wild places and, uh, you know, having kind of the, the freedom that comes with that. And instead, I'm stuck in my dark closet shuffling around stuff that I don't care about. And I, I think at that moment I said, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. And um, and, it, and that really uh, stuck with me. And um, so, you know, there was a, a beginning there of, I guess, a rebellion against the system a little bit um, or a, a personal rebellion. Um, 
but then later, uh, as I you know grew up and studied more, I went to uh, college and was really interested in in environmental studies, and that's what I decided to major in. Uh, but I thought I would also major, uh, take a second major in economics. And it was very much the standard, uh, what you'd call neoclassical economics, uh, which is what we're basing our policies and how we run the economy today. Um, and I, I have to say, uh, on some level, I didn't get it. Um, it just didn't make much sense to me. And I couldn't figure out why for the longest time until I ran into uh, the folks you've already mentioned, Herman Daly being uh, uh, you know, probably the, the number one example and Brian Check, uh, another one as well. And uh, I met Herman Daly at this conference I was at and uh, his, his textbook, Ecological Economics, had just come out it's a college level textbook and I, I got a copy of it and I read it cover to cover, which is a really weird thing to do. Um, but it was fascinating to me because I, it really, uh, I, I guess I was looking at it, where was this when I was studying economics? It really addressed the intersection of the economy and the broader you know, social and, and ecological world in which the economy is embedded. It had a, a much more uh, intuitive starting point. So, uh, you know, and, I, and once you start down that rabbit hole of reading Herman Daly, you, you don't know where you're going to end up. And this is where I ended up at, at the Post Carbon Institute, looking at the, the transition from fossil fuels to a renewable energy society, which uh, as part of that, uh, is a an economy that respects the limits to growth. Well, in your book, uh, you kind of put as a an overall organizing question: um, How do we share this one planet and provide a high quality of life for all? And then you make the case that the existing approaches to the economy uh, aren't working; they're actually failing. Uh, and that you're offering an alternative, which we're saying is the steady-state economy. Uh, and then kind of after introducing uh, the issue of, of, of comparing, I guess, as you call it, the, the neoclassical approach, which is an economy of more, uh, versus uh, the steady-state approach, which is an economy of enough, uh, then you go on to uh, pose three questions. Uh, and the three questions are, um, why should enough be a goal? Uh, how much is enough? And then what sort of economy provides enough? So let's kind of walk through those three questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think if you, if you start with that first one, why should enough be the goal instead of more? I mean, I, I guess the first place to start is more is is the founding principle of our economic order today. So every nation in the world is trying to have a bigger economy next year than it had this year. Uh, that's what economic growth is. If you want to get technical about it, uh, you look at gross domestic product or GDP, which is just simply a, a dollar value of the goods and services that a country produces in a year. 
we're expecting that to rise year after year after year. So what that amounts to is more people consuming more stuff. And um, when you, you just think about that from a, uh, an environmental standpoint or even a social standpoint, you know, what are the consequences of doing that year after year after year? Um, so, you know, you can immediately start to question, uh, the, that more mentality. And I like to, I always, you know, when you're talking about complex systems and very large things, I like to break it down and and think much more small scale. I mean, if you, uh, even on a philosophical level, think about, uh, more, uh, in your own life. I mean, more is a good thing. Getting more food is good if you don't have enough or you know let's say you're underslept and tired all the time getting more sleep is a good thing but there's a point that you can go past where it's not it doesn't hold anymore you know think about food you keep eating more and more and and then you start struggling with obesity and and all the chronic problems that come with that um, if you are talking about sleep, you know, getting more sleep, if you keep getting more and more and more pretty soon, it's, that's basically a medical problem. So, and we all recognize how good it is when we have the right amount, when we have enough kind of that Goldilocks place, right? Where, where it's not too little, not too much, but just right. And that's really, at least from a philosophical standpoint, why enough should be the goal rather than more. Um, but if you want to look at it from a, uh, a you know, the bigger picture, uh, we're seeing the environmental failures of economic growth right now. Um, climate change is a direct result, the extinction crisis, loss of biodiversity. Um, you can take your pick of the measures, uh, ecological footprint analysis, tells us that we're in an overshoot situation. We are consuming more than the planet can regenerate each year. And you, you can do that for a while. It's kind of like going into debt, but uh, the bill is gonna come soon. And, and this is the kind of bill that we would pay in suffering. And I, I don't think anybody wants to see that. Um, and, and we may already be uh, pretty far down that road. Uh, you could also look at it from, uh, there's another uh, way of looking at this that comes out of the Stockholm Resilience Center called um, the Planetary Boundaries Analysis. And just looking at these different global systems and showing that we're, we're pushing past the safe operating space, uh, whether you're talking about disrupting the nitrogen cycle or acidifying the ocean or using fresh water uh, all these kinds of different planetary systems we're pushing into the danger zone. And so it's it's pretty clear that we are outgrowing uh, that the the safe size of the economy. So we really need to come up with a a a way that that we don't do that, and that starts with having the right goal. And the right goal should be uh, an, an optimally sized economy, an economy of enough rather than one that's always chasing, uh, chasing this goal of, of being bigger. We also talk about, um, I guess, the social failures 
of the growth economy. Um, kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, the you know, a lot of what's happened with economic growth for a lot of people is life has become more comfortable and and longer, and these are good things. Um, but the returns on that growth actually uh, s- slow down once you pass a certain point. So, for example, uh, you know, in the U.S., our uh, I don't have the most up-to-date stats, but our median income is pretty high. Uh, uh, median uh, household income is over forty thousand um, dollars. You can you can plot all the nations of the world on uh, on a graph and look at where are they with with their incomes, and you can also match that up to life satisfaction. And what you see is that. If you have very low income and you can't meet your your basic needs, of course you're going to have a low life satisfaction. But as you come up that scale, as your income goes up, um, uh, and I guess I'm talking about that that forty thousand plus. That's uh, uh, that's average. That's GDP per capita. So that's as you. So that's per person. So you know it'd be more than that for a family. But as you as you come up that scale life satisfaction increases, but it, it doesn't keep doing that forever. So once you get past that point of enough, once your family is getting what it needs and, and uh, maybe has some cushion, a little bit of margin, um, more is not increasing anybody's happiness. So the, the, I think the message that's been sold is always being richer, always being able to consume more, consume whatever you want, whenever you want, the, that that's the pathway to happiness simply isn't true. Um, you know, and the, the good thing is the, the a lot of the things that do make us happy, like good personal connections and, and um, those things are actually free. Um, they're not things that we have to go out and buy and, and consume. Being active is another of the things. We don't have to uh, go out and buy anything to be active. So this whole idea of growing the economy and consuming more and more and becoming uh, more of a consumer instead of a citizen, it's making us less happy. And uh, so... This whole, you know, the growth we know is bumping up against environmental limits, but socially it's not working out either. Well, I saw a documentary um, not long ago about, I guess it's a, a mayor of one of the cities in Brazil uh, that said, I'm not going to make you richer. I'm going to try to make you happier uh, and tried to do, like I say, infrastructure changes that that made people's lives more pleasant rather than made them more wealthy. Um, and that, and it seemed to be working. Uh, that's the first time I'd heard of that. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real, I haven't heard of that, but that's a really interesting strategy, right? And it starts with the goal. Like, let's look at what are the keys to happiness and, you know, you can have those conversations. What would make, uh, uh, your family, your household happy? What would make a citizenry happy? And, you know, we have this um, problem here in America where you're constantly bombarded with the message that being wealthy is what would make you happy. Um, 
but uh, you know, the studies are, are clear on it. And I think even if you just look at your own life, you hardly ever hear of somebody at the end of their life going, damn, I wish I'd have just worked uh, another day in the office. You know, no, it's people regret not spending time with family, not getting the the richness of those relationships. That's the, you know, the thing that, that people regret if they haven't spent their time and, and their efforts and their lives on that. So, um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, for a politician thinking that way, that that's definitely on the progressive end of things. Um, I am aware of one other place, uh, the, the nation of Bhutan has taken very seriously the idea of instead of tracking gross domestic product or gross national product, uh, you know, the, the dollar value of what they produce and consume, they are trying to track gross national happiness and, and trying to protect their environmental and, and cultural heritage uh, to achieve that. So I've heard that uh, as well, and I can't remember where I've heard it, whether I saw it. Uh, that it was there a documentary made of that? Uh, I don't know. I, there probably has been. I mean, the, they started that work quite a few decades ago, and uh, I did mention it in my book, and I've, you know, I've found that uh, elsewhere in my study. So, yeah, I, th I think... Uh, I don't know. It kind of fires the imagination a little bit. Wow, a, a country that really wants to embrace the idea of our people's happiness and what kind of economy would it take to support that over over the long term, too, you know, and, and really trying to think out beyond a few years time or beyond, you know, as, as we get in the habit of doing here beyond the next quarter, right? I mean, in, in the United States, we're often on a kind of a, a uh, especially in corporate boardrooms, uh, how did we do this quarter and what are we planning next quarter? Um, they're thinking over lifetimes and hundreds of years, if not thousands. Yeah, I agree with you. It's an exciting, it's an exciting thing to, to think about. Mm -hmm. So I guess you would say then that the economy of enough is a worthy goal because especially uh, the economy of more is failing us environmentally and socially. Yeah, and I also, you know, I don't want to just say that economy of enough is a better goal because our current economy is failing us. I mean, yes, it's true. It's, it's failing us and can lead to a what you could see as a just widespread disaster, suffering, threats to civilization, threats to uh, to even life on the planet. But uh, so, you know, that's serious enough. But I also like to look at, well, what what are the, the good things in an economy of enough? And part of it, uh, probably the most uh, enticing to me is the the idea of balance of life. You know, if you're not always chasing more trying to have more income, more stuff, more, you know, everything year after year, uh, it really frees up a lot of time. I mean, I like the idea of, uh, for example, one of the policies that we talk about, and maybe we'll get into this more, uh, is in thinking about, well, how do you maintain jobs if you're not in a growing economy is maybe people work less and maybe you share jobs. Um, you know, who, who doesn't enjoy their vacation time or who doesn't like uh, having a, a sort of a calmer schedule, you know, and I, I've 
intentionally try to do that in my life. And when I am able to achieve that, I find that things go so much better. Um, I have time for, for hobbies, for music, for spending time with people that I care about, for exploring places around me that, you know, that I, that I didn't know were there. And, um, I don't know, to me, that's, uh, that's, a, a one of the beauties of life. I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, like I want to go ride bikes with my daughter, for example, like that to me, if you're working all the time and you're too tired to be able to do that, wow, you've really missed out. And so, uh, I think an economy that accepts the goal of enough, you'll see people who have, uh, a lot more balance in their life and a lot more ability to spend time on the things that matter most to them. So moving to the second question then, uh, how much is enough? <laughs> well, I guess that's a, a kind of a, a tough question to answer, but you know, I think what you have to do is consider, uh, just the idea of scale. Um, you know, I talked about how the economy is uh, aiming for growth year after year, and there's a really helpful rule uh, in figuring out what that actually means. And it's, it's uh, I think you can call it uh, the rule of 70. Um, and the idea is if you take the number 70 and you divide it by the percentage rate of growth, uh, you get the doubling time of the thing that's growing. So if, if our goal in the economy is to grow at 3% a year, well, you, you take the number 70, divide it by three, you get roughly, what, 20, 23 years. That's the doubling time of the economy. And that's what we've been aiming for, 3% growth a year. So just think about that. Every 23 years, the economy is supposed to be twice the size it was before. And you know, early on in an exponential growth curve, maybe that's not that big a deal. But as you continue that, it, it, the, the growth gets impossibly fast. Um, and so, and remember, if you're talking about the economy, what are you talking about? You're talking about the number of people and the amount that, that they consume per capita. So, um, you know, it's hard to say exactly how much is enough, but it's fairly easy to say when you're passing the point. Um, and so those studies that I talked about, ecological footprint analysis or the planetary boundaries, when you're in that overshoot space, you need to pull back. And that's where we already are. So, you know, how much is enough? It's less than we're at now, for sure, uh, because you can see we're damaging the uh, the ecosystems that we all depend on in the in the climate system and and um, so you know we, we've got to figure out what is a sustainable economic scale and that can really vary right you could have a lot more people but consuming a lot less uh, each or you could have fewer people in the world who are you know collectively consuming a lot more and I think we'd need to find, find that balance and, you know, but hopefully it would be a balance point where, 
everybody who is living is getting enough to meet their needs. Well, you talked about that um, the economy of more uh, often is really based upon a boom or a bust uh, pattern. Um, and how does that, how do the bust pattern, bust part of the pattern, like the Great Recession, uh, how does that play into the overall notion of growth and, and increase, like say, increase in the economy? Yeah, well, you know, nobody likes to live through a depression or a recession or the things that come with it, whether that's losing a job or, or seeing people around you who are hurting um, or losing a house. Or, um, so, I mean, that's what, what's been the attempt uh, to fix with the growth economy, right? Why we try to stay on this more cycle is to avoid the pain of those, those down cycles. But uh, in an economy of enough, you'd really try to smooth out both of those. Um, and, uh, and I think that we are setting ourselves up, if we continue the, the more path, we're setting ourselves up for a much bigger uh, downturn than than what we've been used to. I mean, uh, uh, a a huge cut uh, in what's going on financially, and 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 also, you know, the environment, the, the the physical problems that we're causing. You know, they don't pay attention to the markets, right? They're the wildfire, the flood, the uh, the things that are happening as a result of climate change. Um, that you know, there's no there's no telling what the severity of the downturn we can get from something like that is. So um, I think if we don't take the limits to growth seriously and don't work toward an economy that respects those limits, the kind of downturn we'll see, the kind of bust that we'll see is so far beyond what we've experienced. And that's the to me, that's a motivating factor. I mean, I, I worry about it. I mentioned my daughter. I've got a child who, you know, I, I don't want to see her living in a world that's, uh, you know, that's less rich, with less opportunity, with, um, you know, with, uh, you know, where, where suffering is the norm. So uh, I think, you know, that that to me is, you know, getting rid of, uh, you know, you talk about trying to avoid bust cycles. That's the bust that I, that I really want to see uh, humanity step up and avoid. Um, you talked about that for a lot of people, um, technology seems to be the means of overcoming problems. And you spent a good deal of, the, of your chapter uh, kind of discussing uh, the positives, but the limits of technology. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, technology, uh, people are really clever, right? We invent things. Uh, we find ways to increase carrying capacity. Um, so, I mean, we've used technology to, to help us uh, have more people consuming more stuff. Um, and we've used technology to solve some of the environmental problems that have been caused. Um, but again, there, there are limits there. And I think, uh, you know, one example that I've turned to that, that I talk about in the book is, 
is Norman Borlaug, who was uh, really the driving force behind uh, what was called the Green Revolution at the time, which was, you know, in the in the 60s and 70s, people were really worried that population was increasing so fast that we weren't going to be able to feed everyone. And what what Borlaug did is he worked on uh, plant breeding, uh, specifically wheat, and basically was able to create a dwarf wheat strain that had uh, bigger seed heads, so more food, and it and it didn't fall down as easily, so it was, it was more productive, and you know essentially increased the food output uh, that farmers could could grow. And uh, really amazing. I mean, a lot of people look at it as this man and his work. He he and his colleagues probably saved more lives than than anybody in history. But even he himself was very straightforward about it. He, he kind of said, look, uh, yeah, we've done this technical thing and it uh, gives us a little bit of a cushion. Just don't use that cushion to keep growing the population uh, because we'll end up right back at the same place. And that's the, the trouble with uh, and, you know, that exponential growth. If you uh, are able to push the limits to growth away uh, through some technology, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's a, uh, a dwarf wheat, maybe it's a carbon capture and storage, uh, maybe it's um, uh, some medical advancement, whatever it is, if you're able to push that uh, out and you use that cushion to just keep growing, you're right back at the same place, but, it, well, even a more difficult place because now you've got more people consuming more stuff and the, you know, we've already talked about the problems that come with that. So, well, now, is that, uh, is that the, um, the rebound effect? Is that what you mean it, by that? It, it's very similar. The, the rebound effect is kind of the idea, people think that if you get more efficient, you consume less. Uh, but the opposite is what ends up happening. Sometimes it's called the Jevons paradox. That's the Jevons. Jevons is the name of the economist who first wrote about this in the 1800s. But um, and it's a paradox because it, it seems like it. Like let's say you invent a light bulb that uh, uh, you know that that uses less electricity, which has has happened. Right? We went from uh, from incandescence to fluorescent to now LEDs. And the idea is, oh, we'll use less electricity. But the opposite is true because uh, you have this more efficient bulb. It's cheaper. People tend to run them more and put them in more places. And you, the total amount of electricity that gets used actually ends up increasing. You know, unless you very specifically say this is the limit of the amount of electricity we're, we're going to use. Um, so, I mean, I don't argue that having a more efficient light bulb is bad. I think that's a good thing, but it's, but if we use it in a way that we're actually increasing our impact and using more resource, then, then it's not a good thing. And that's what happens when, when your technology, when everything is embedded in a system that is designed to keep growing bigger and bigger. And 
uh, again, it leads back to we need to change that goal and we need to have policies in place that support an economy that recognizes when enough is enough. Which moves us to the, to the third question. Uh, when you talk about um, what sort of economy provides enough, and so you get into the kind of an overall um, outline of what steady state economy is. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at its simplest, um, a steady state economy is one that isn't growing. Uh, it's, it's one where you try to keep it at, a, at an optimal size. And uh, that means, you know, we've got to get our, our population stabilized, can't keep growing population year after year. Uh, it also means we've got to get our consumption stabilized. Uh, and what that means is the economic throughput of materials and energy. Um, and, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways you can think of to do that. But essentially what we're talking about with a steady state economy is we are consuming only, uh, we're consuming enough resources to meet our needs and not pushing past uh, these planetary boundaries or not having an ecological footprint that takes us past what what can be regenerated each year. So you talk about um, uh, kind of a list of, of what's on the list and what's off the list of what needs to be stay steady, I guess, as opposed to what doesn't have to stay steady. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, like I was saying, those ideas of the throughput of material and energy, um, the total amount that, that your economy uses that would remain steady but that doesn't mean that uh, you can't have progress or that you can't have uh, technological development or that you uh, are limiting uh, people's ability to pursue the things that they want to do um, but it you know you you could see some 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 effects that that happen along the way. I mean, if if we're not always chasing more, um, one of the things that appeals to me is maybe our culture starts to change. Maybe status uh, achieved by you know what I own and what I consume, maybe that starts to go away. And I think that would be a a really healthy thing. Um, you know, maybe you'd have maybe you could get back to the idea of you get more status by what you give rather than what you own and have. Um, I think some other things would change uh, pretty drastically. I think you'd have a, a much more local uh, economy. Uh, right now we're, you know, we're, we're a very globalized economy. We, we go online and order a product and it's shipped from uh, halfway around the world and um, maybe we get back to, uh, to where that's the, not the norm, but that's the exception. And the norm is economic interaction, say, within your own ecoregion, where you're consuming food that was grown where you live. You're, um, you have a, a much more regional uh, flavor to things. And to me, that makes the world a far more interesting place. I mean, you know, it, if you think about traveling um, any distance from home, if it looks just like home, then what's the point of traveling anyway? So, 
Well, I noticed, I noticed that like when I visited my friend in Atlanta, um, it's you you go a mile and there's all of the same stores, all you know, and then you go another mile and there's a repeat repetition of all the same stores. And, yeah. And the, where I was I was talking with you before the interview about uh, that I live in Asheville, uh, North Carolina area, and. Uh, that it was able to survive the uh, Great Recession um, better, I think, than other areas of the country, in part because of those micro economies that you were talking about. That um, it um, kind of building off of the uh, Asheville Buncombe Technical Community College's um, culinary program, which has gotten to be a rather good program, uh, and then also the uh, craft brewing industry um, yeah. those two things have produced a um, uh, an industry of farming uh, all around the region um, that um, uh, kind of becomes self-sustaining uh, in a lot of ways that the farmers yeah. feed the restaurants and the and the craft brews and then which sell to you know customers and uh, so it's been it's been a kind of a very positive thing well and then let's talk about for a second uh just the you know appreciate a good craft brew you know say as opposed <laughs> to uh you know the the mega product beer that you know just tastes like swill versus you know this this really good beer in your hand that was produced locally and you can even go and talk to the people who produced it you know you most of they'll geek out on it and you'll have a you know, you'll have a real uh, understanding of what it took to make that and, and get to you. I feel the same way. I live uh, right now in Corvallis, Oregon, and it's got some similar, I think, economic um, trajectories as, as what you're talking about in Asheville. And uh, we talk about this uh, quite a lot at, at Post Carbon Institute, you know, in trying to think about what is a, an economy that's not powered by fossil fuel going to look like, um, Having that, that, those robust local economic relationships really does make the place where you live much more resilient to the kind of shocks you're talking about, like the you know, subprime mortgage downturn. You know, if you're not uh, globalized in the way you do your, your, your economic transactions, if you're getting food from the farmer's market, from people you know in your area, right? If you're buying uh, local products, you're far less likely to be hammered by these big external shocks that we have absolutely no control over, no say, no governance. Um, and, and I like that too, the idea of having a resilient local economy uh, in your community you know, the people who are involved in it are the ones that make the rules, not having to have some just massive national uh, bureaucracy to run everything. So um, I, I think there's a lot of upside to it. And, and yeah, and it just makes uh, life uh, quite a bit more interesting. You know, uh, really, I don't know, when you talk about uh, the school, um you know, having a culinary institute and then farmers coming in and then having craft brewing. I can just picture it in my mind. Like, wow, what a pleasant place to be. 
And it is. I mean, the, the Asheville, I, and I know that um, when I first moved to Asheville, although it's, it's kind of a home area for me, I, I, the mountains between North Carolina and Tennessee are my, my home. Uh, born in Knoxville and, and kind of grew up uh, in, in the mountain ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first, but when we first came to Asheville, um, I guess Richard Florida's book uh, on the rise of the creative class uh, had come out and, and it had talked about that Portland, Oregon and Austin, Texas were kind of the, the role models of what the economies in the future would look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Asheville was trying to emulate uh, those two, those two cities, uh, and what they were doing. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think any of them, uh, have gone out and said, we want to have a steady state economy. Um, it's very hard to find any, any place that's embraced, uh, that idea, uh, because, you know, it requires a major amount of change, but I think it's leaning toward that direction that, What's more important is the quality of place rather than getting another Walmart in here, you know, and that's uh, you see that in campaigns, uh, you know, bumper sticker language. They'll say, keep Austin weird or keep Portland weird or keep Asheville weird. And by weird, what they mean is let's be our own place with our own economy, use our own resourcefulness. We we want to maintain Uh, A lot of these places have outdoors ethics. You know, they want to have it be a pleasant place to be by the river, to go in the mountains. I mean, you you talk about where you grew up, the Blue Ridge Mountains and and that whole uh, chain of of Appalachia. I mean, that's beautiful. You even said the Uh, word right, Appalachia. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, but I have to admit I I grew up outside Atlanta. So, uh, you know, you're talking about the the store or is the same, you know, three blocks over. I, I grew up through that. I remember it was the fastest growing county in the, in the country, uh, basically where I grew up and, um, you could, I mean, almost watch it unfolding. You know, there'd be another new subdivision of houses, another cul-de-sac, another big arterial street, another lane on the highway. I even remember the interchange on the interstates near my house, uh, was called spaghetti junction. I mean, it was just, a a, a total build out of the growth economy and you could watch it happening before your eyes, but it's, you know, and, and people were moving there because there were jobs and, uh, you know, it felt like opportunity, but, but I think you quickly find you're missing out on what you have, uh, in a place like Asheville that you're talking about where, yes, we are, we care about jobs and we want to, um, you know, people need to have things to do with their lives and people need to be able to earn an income. But if you wreck the ecosystem, if you, uh, beat up the, uh, you know, the, the place in which those things happen, the quality of life goes way down. And so you, you end up with a pretty fierce population who are connected to place. And to me, in the end, what a lot of it comes down to is we as people, we want to connect with each other and we want to connect with the places that we inhabit. And uh, our economy, especially as it's grown, 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 it has been eroding our ability to do that. And uh, we need to get that back. And I think the transition 
off of fossil fuels and the transition to a steady state economy gives us a, a, a far better chance of achieving those, of achieving connection to one another and achieving connection to place. Well, you, you talk about four main features of a steady state economy, which is sustainable scale, fair distribution, efficiency allocation, and then as we've talked already about is high quality of life. Um, yeah, yeah, Herman Daly is definitely the, the expert there, and uh, I definitely recommend that, uh, that your listeners read his work. But yeah, I mean, sustainable scale we've talked about. You can't push beyond these limits. Um, I think the second point is really worth talking about a little bit more in depth, though, because you have to think about if you're not having an ever-expanding pie then you really better think about how you divide up the pieces, right? And uh, it's not to say that yeah. everybody gets the exact same size slice of the pie. You know, some people don't care. They don't want a big slice of the pie, so they don't need it. Um, other people don't work very hard, so maybe they get a, a smaller piece of the pie. But, but they're is definitely a standard of fairness that we need to be looking at. And what you're seeing now, uh, especially here in the U.S., is uh, the haves are continually growing how much they have, and the have-nots are worse off. I mean, we're at, right now, a record number of, of months of growth in the economy. Uh, we've had growth since the, the Great Recession, and yet... Uh, you know, you see so many people have been left behind during that growth period. Um, and most all of that growth has gone to the people who are already uh, incredibly wealthy. You know, the, the example that I've uh, pulled out from time to time is is uh, Jeff uh, Bezos, the head of Amazon. Uh, a couple of years ago, he made 17 million dollars per hour. You think about what that means, $17 million per hour over the course of a year. Wow. So <laughs> it took him six minutes to earn a lifetime's worth of income uh, that you could expect to get if you go to college. Yeah. You know, six minutes. And, uh, you know, we kind of lionize these folks and make them out to be heroes. But, uh, it's not doing anyone any good to have these huge gaps between the rich and the poor. In fact, I mean, it's been really well studied. There's a great book um, by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson called The Spirit Level, where they did epidemiological studies of um, how, to, you know, just, just basically comparing income gaps, income and wealth gaps to various markers of of social and medical health. And they find that countries that are uh, more equal uh, in their income and wealth distribution do better on basically everything, <laughs> crime, uh, illegal drug use, education, um, unplanned pregnancies, you know, all these kinds of markers of, of social breakdown uh, they happen less frequently if you have a, a better distribution of income and wealth. And, you know, one of the reasons is that it, it can feel like we're all in it together. It's not a just dog eat dog kind of a uh, kind of an economy. 
And uh, I think especially as you're talking about, you know, the, the kind of the, I guess the idea that's been pitched is if the economy's growing, then you can, you can find a place, you can get your share, uh, you, and unfortunately that hasn't been true for, for a lot of people. Um, but then if we are not growing the economy, I think we just need to be much more explicit about it. We need to really go back and look at the rules of income and wealth distribution. And I always thought it was interesting, guys like Warren Buffett who say, yeah, the system's rigged. This is not fair. I don't, I shouldn't keep all of this. This is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, he understands that, yeah, he makes his money through his work, but his work is only possible because of a system that's set up the way it is. And, and he's in favor of changing that. So uh, I think we really need to be explicit about that. So I guess moving forward, uh, what we're doing and helping inform people about steady state economics and, and what you did in writing books and, and those kind of things, uh, that's a step. But you also kind of talk about uh, political steps. Um, how do you see that happening and how does that play into our kind of current political situation? Uh, are there candidates that you know of that are running on steady state platforms? Um, yeah, there there are not, at least not that I'm aware of. I mean, I think in the United States, the closest you'd get is the Green Party. Uh, but of course, the Green Party, uh, at least right now, has no shot of, uh, you know, say, gaining the presidency or really making a mark. You're, you're kind of stuck right now with Democrats and Republicans. And... Neither party is going to come out and say uh, we're we're the party that's uh, that's for a steady state economy rather than for continuous growth, uh, and that's just because of the connotations that we've you know that we've gotten with growth. Um, you know, it's basically always pitched as a good thing, and and people aren't really analyzing what's happening. I mean, when I I've, I've become attuned to thinking about, uh, you know, when I hear, oh, we're going to grow the economy or stock prices are going up or whatever, you know, it's like, well, what are the what are the real implications of that? So so nobody's really uh, attuned to that politically. And, you know, you could look at something like the Green New Deal and say, OK, that that's a step in the right direction. But. Uh, the, the basics there are saying, yeah, we need to get off of fossil fuels. We need a renewable energy economy uh, and we're going to grow jobs in that transition. But, uh, you know, and, and that's fine if you're shifting jobs out of fossil fuels and into the renewable energy sector. But the, uh, you'll have a very different economy if it's run on renewables than you would you know, being run on on these energy dense fossil fuels that we're used to. And it may not be the, you know, the, the growth economy that, that we, uh, that we've all grown up with. So, you know, but they're not explicit about that. They're not, you know, the, the, yeah, uh, anybody backing the green new deal, at least that I've heard of, hasn't said yes. And we need to have policies for a steady state economy. And certainly on the other side of the aisle, the Republicans are mostly denying the problems uh, that we've been talking about. Um, 
and just sort of going full thrust. Let's let's more money, more stuff, more people. So, uh, yeah, it's a. I think we have a long way to go uh, before you're going to see political advocacy of of steady state economics. Um, and I think it's going to be born from the crises that that we go through. And I mean, that's kind of a sad fact as, you know, sort of intelligent beings, we're capable of seeing the consequences of our actions. And even though we've uh, studied and reported the hell out of them, we're not taking the actions that need to be taken. So um, I think uh, that more crisis is really what's going to produce the change. Um, and you know, nobody wants, I don't want to see that. I don't want us to live through crisis. I'm not excited for, Hey, let's have a crisis. And, <laughs> you know, but, um, but I, you know, I, I think that's the reality of our situation. And, and, you know, frankly, we're a, we're a pretty distracted nation. Uh, and you, you know, I'm not casting judgment on anybody for it. I, I'm pretty distracted, <laughs> myself, uh, there are so many things competing for our attention uh, that it's pretty easy to ignore something like uh, the big picture environmental mess, the environmental hole that we've dug for ourselves. If you're not paying attention to that, uh, it's easy to ignore. And with all the different media and and day-to-day things that, that we face in this society, that's a pretty easy thing to ignore. So uh, just as a concluding thing, uh, not relating directly to the, to the overall issue, but uh, kind of indirectly of, of your own kind of transition from uh, Cassie to post-carbon, uh, you know, how did you see that move as an extension of your, your concerns? Yeah, well, I've always really appreciated, uh, since I've been aware of them, Post Carbon Institute, um, there's a, our, our senior fellow is a guy named Richard Heinberg, and he's written 13 books, um, basically tracking what's happening with energy, uh, and then running that through the economy and society. Uh, and he's got a book called The End of Growth, uh, that's right in line as well with, uh, with what we've been talking about today. And, um, basically, you know, post carbon Institute, I've always seen as one of the key truth telling organizations. So I, you know, I'm really happy to be, uh, part of that. And, uh, really what we do is we, we look at what's happening in the world. We, uh, have some expertise in, energy and fossil fuels. And of course, nothing happens in the economy. I mean, nothing literally happens in anything unless there is energy, uh, a supply of energy and energy flowing through the system. So uh, it's one of the key things economically. I mean, the reason we've been able to grow exponentially is we've been able to power the economy with, you know, essentially the magic of fossil fuels. But you know, there's a consequence to it, right? It's not really magic. When you burn fossil fuels, you put uh, a lot of CO2 in the air. You also have uh, a lot of other pollutants, and it, it en- enables us to do, uh, you know, immense amounts of work on the landscape that, that have consequences. 
So Post Carbon Institute uh, sort of follows that story and looks at the history and looks at where we're going in the uh, and we look at the uh, what we call the E4 crises, which are around energy, environment, the economy, and equity, all of which uh, we've touched on here today. And then trying to look at well, okay, those are that's a huge problem to think about. Uh, how do you how do you begin to respond? How do you address it? And we've um, taken up the idea of you, you should really be trying to build community resilience. That's the sweet spot of where you can make a difference and what will be the most useful as these crises start pushing harder and harder, uh, pushing back on society. And, uh, you know, David, you already talked about that Asheville uh, situation of, of kind of making it through the Great Recession probably a little better than some of the other cities around the nation. And that's really the idea of try to build community resilience, try to have relationships uh, with your neighbors, with people in your community where, you know, you, you build trust with one another and, and build local economic relationships, build uh, a, a community that that's there for one another when, when things do get tough. Well, I am deeply grateful uh, that you have helped us out today uh, more fully understanding. Uh, to my listeners, I very much encourage you to go purchase a copy, read Enough is Enough. Uh, we only dealt with really the first part uh, of the book, uh, but he outlines each chapter in the remaining part of the book of what's going on, uh, what we could do instead, and what needs to happen next, uh, which is a great way of formatting uh, the conversation on so many subjects. Uh, so thank you, Rob, uh, for the work that you're doing, uh, for the book that you've written. Uh, and I hope that uh, we will have you on again. I hope you'll be willing to come on again, that we can continue our uh, understanding of this. Yeah, thanks, David, and thanks for the work you're doing, too. I really appreciate it, and uh, all the best to you. Well, you've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My next guest is the Reverend Robert Randolph. Robert was a pastor, but at an early stage in his ministry, he had two strokes. As the result, he had to give up the pastorate, but he became a chaplain at the Swannanoa Valley Youth Development Center. Robert is going to talk with us about the experience of stroke survivors and the spirituality related to that. Please tune in. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. And for your support, blessings. May the words from-
my mouth, speak your peace. 